is burning. Hey friends, it's Olivia from the future. I just wanted to share a little conversation we had right before recording where we were patting ourselves on the back for remembering to record a backup. I was going to mention that the last couple of times because I'm like, I feel like we've been fine, but like also it's living on the edge a little doing it. Then like we're going to have some sort of catastrophe or yeah, it's a bad habit to get into. Okay. So to spare you audio that sounds like this. I don't know. I feel like it's like a dinosaur movie or something where like, I don't know, people are like going through the brush and then they're like, hmm, what is this? And then like they zoom out and it's like this big thing. Yeah. So instead of that, we're going to use the zoom audio, which is not quite as high quality and definitely has some like clicks and little things in it. But this is our reminder to stop manifesting bad things at the beginning of our episodes, which has become sort of a trend. Um, but hopefully you still enjoy it. And here's the episode. Welcome to World is Burning, the storytelling podcast for your climate anxiety. I'm Elise. And I'm Olivia. Today, we're talking about words and language and two particular words that kind of stuck out to us as maybe problematic, maybe They good. just follow us around. They're, they haunt us. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, we just wanted to explore that in the backgrounds of them, how they came about, why we use them today. Yeah, I feel like we talk about climate language a lot, especially in relation to climate emotions, because I feel like a lot of those have been developing Mm -hmm. and they're like helpful to understand how we process things. But then it's also so interesting. I feel like we talk about how certain maybe scientific terms have been like co-opted. Different terms can mean one thing in 2015 and a totally another thing Mm -hmm. in 2020. So I'm doing the carbon footprint and I can jump right into it if you want. I feel like this was destined to be a world is burning story. I'm pretty sure it was on our list like last year when we started coming up with episode ideas mm-hmm. because you hear about it a lot. So first and foremost, my sources were Mashable, World Resources Institute, The Guardian, including articles by Amy Westervelt and Rebecca Solnit, Mother Jones, Provoke Media, the WWF, and Grist. And I'm going to put even more like further reading on this subject, both some like scientific uh, science journals and like climate communication stuff and also some Twitter threads, also some ads from BP, because I don't know, that seems to be a trend on this podcast that like we always are talking about ads, but the mm-hmm. crying Indian ad, which we talked about in our Coca-Cola packaging episode, which was sponsored by Coca-Cola Foundation and a lot of packaging industry, made this ad about pollution, like this very racist ad that we talk about a lot. Anyways, Mm -hmm. that was referenced a lot when talking about BP's campaign to popularize the carbon footprint. So I'll define carbon footprint as we understand it today. So a 2010 Mm -hmm. article for The Guardian boiled it down like this. They said, when talking about climate change, footprint is a metaphor for the total impact that something has. And carbon is a shorthand for all the different greenhouse gases that contribute to global warming. The term carbon footprint, therefore is a shorthand to describe the best estimate that we can get of all full climate change impact of something. And that something could be anything, an activity, item, lifestyle, company, country, even the whole world. And carbon dioxide is used as a metric because it is the primary greenhouse gas emitted through human activity. So it's a shorthand for all other greenhouse gas emissions. I feel like that's a very basic thing, but like I needed at least to be reminded of that. Um, when you hear about carbon footprint, I'm like, well, what about methane? And essentially, it's a shorthand for all of those things. That Guardian article was from over a decade ago, 2010, and it already considered the term horribly abused. If you want to know how long people have been sick of hearing about your carbon footprint, in 2010, just so happens also to be the same year as the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which BP was responsible for, mm-hmm. which is the largest accidental oil spill in marine waters in history. So like I said, BP is often credited with creating the carbon footprint term and this is mostly partially true. So it was through a PR campaign with Ogilvy and Mather that BP popularized the term carbon footprint in an effort to turn some of the responsibility/guilt/shame back onto the consumer. Um so they did this in a lot of ways like it was a whole advertising campaign so there's a website, advertisements on television, corporate messaging, messaging to their employees, all of that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, in 2004, they introduced their carbon footprint calculator. In 2006, their website read, it's time to go on a low-carbon diet. And a few years earlier, in 2000, they introduced their slogan, Beyond Petroleum, and began advertising as an energy company as opposed to mm-hmm. an oil company. They asked questions like, what on earth is a carbon footprint? And told people about your specific carbon footprint. I went on their website this morning because like some of their advertising was for bp.com slash carbon footprint, which when I went there, I didn't find anything. Mm-hmm. But when I went on their website, I was able to put in my car mileage and my annual driving all fake, of course. Mm-hmm. And then I could check out for $42 to offset my car's emissions. And you could do the same thing mm. for airplanes, anything like that. I don't know about you, Elise, but I've seen these before, especially like I feel like especially a couple of years ago when I was like, if I purchased a flight, I would mm-hmm. see an option to offset my carbon emissions for like $19 or something relatively low. Have you seen that before? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I've seen that. And I've also seen it with a lot of kind of like, uh, like big quotations of like mm-hmm. eco-friendly clothing things yes. will offer to like offset your thing. Or advertise that like you can offset your purchase. Like I think Reformation kind of does that stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Like you can purchase like credits, and I know other companies do that too. But yeah, yeah. I've definitely seen that around. Not not just for flights. Yeah, it's so, so true. Like especially corporations and especially like clothing industry, transportation have a lot of those. And carbon offsets are like a whole separate conversation, especially because we're focusing on like language in this episode. Yeah. But I do think it's interesting to see like the direct connection between those. And like I've done it as recently as a couple of months ago. It was an extra like 50 cents to offset my bus from New York to Boston Mm -hmm. for like a $20 trip, whatever. And so I was like, okay, sure. Yeah, you can have my 50 cents. I mean, it's the same thing as whatever, like rounding up at the grocery store Uh and stuff like that, where ultimately like it's going to a corporation to help them offset their emissions, but like it gives you this illusion. Yeah. I honestly, like, I I feel like it's something that is like technically probably good that it's happening, but I just, Mm -hmm. I think it's a scam. I'm just like, that is like, they're tricking you into thinking that this has no impact and it does, but like it's kind of being fixed on the back end or like being again offset, but it doesn't like solve the problem. Yeah. So yeah, the next term, if we make this language thing a series, the next term I want to do is net zero because that's what I saw when I was on BP's website, watching all their advertising this morning, (laughs) like trying not to be comforted by it but sometimes I was there's all mm-hmm. this language about net zero and just like literally the term net zero like pops up on the screen over like a beautiful forest and it's just like hearts around it I'm like Jesus there's no like nuance here whatsoever you just like yeah taking the next term but back to the carbon footprint um I'll post it on our social media grist I sent this to you Elise had a okay like map of the frequency of the term carbon footprint. And you can see that in mm-hmm. 2004, when BP launched their footprint calculator, the number of uses of that term skyrocketed, even though it's still like 0.0005%. Um, mm-hmm. Basically, the graph is is showing how often that's used in books. So like, not just consumers using this term or like, I don't know, using the term on social media, although I guess that's a little bit early, but also like this term going into scientific journals, academic readings, uh, you know, corporate language for like products and all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, So you can definitely see a noticeable impact there. But question, did BP create this term out of thin air? Absolutely not. Um, mm-hmm. So the concept and the, even the, the name carbon footprint is derived from the ecological footprint concept, which is mm-hmm. um, comes from William E. Rees and Matisse Walkernagel, awesome last name, in mm-hmm. the 1990s. I saw that on Wikipedia, but it was um, <laughs> it was supported by Grist and several other sources. So I believe gotcha. it. And also, I, I believe a lot of what's on Wikipedia, but that's a different story. Um, <laughs> and so... William Rees talked to Grist and was 
talking about how he came up with this concept of the ecological footprint, which sort of had its seeds in, you know, being at the kitchen table at his grandparents' farm, looking at all the food on the table and realizing that, you know, the beef, the chicken, the vegetables, all of that came from Mm -hmm. not only their farm and their general area, but also from their own work. So he felt like he was very much a product of the land, feeling very connected to that. Mm -hmm. So that was sort of the seed of it. And then he was writing a paper about a similar concept. His uh, his computer bugged out and like stopped working. So he bought a new computer, which like, especially in the nineties was significantly smaller than his old one. Mm -hmm. And that was the idea for the footprint, the footprint of his um, computer and also like maybe how much energy it was consuming hmm. all of that. Very cool. So the ecological footprint is defined by the WWF as the amount of the environment necessary to produce the goods and services necessary to support a particular lifestyle. So basically the amount of land and water needed to produce goods and manage the waste that production and consumption of those goods generates. So like this is much broader. It has a little bit of a different focus. I feel like this footprint idea is most helpful to me when thinking about countries like the United States that consume more than we have. So Mm -hmm. like I've seen metrics, I don't have it in front of me, but that are like, you know, if the whole world consumed like the United States does, we would need six and a half ers or probably more than that. Like essentially Mm -hmm. that idea of a footprint. Yeah. But when it comes to the carbon footprint term, that definitely came from BP and Ogilvy. Um, so Ogilvy, I guess, Ogilvy, I don't know, I don't know. Um, has recently done campaigns for brands like Burger King, Samsung, KFC, British Airways, and surprisingly Greenpeace's um, hashtag clean air now campaign. <laughs> so they work with a lot of major brands and specifically those two companies are responsible for co-opting this term and driving the narrative, not so much creating it out of thin air. So a Harvard science historian named Jeffrey Supran told Mashable, this industry has a proven track record of communicating strategically to confuse the public and undermine action. So we should avoid falling into their rhetorical traps, which I feel like I'm falling into maybe right now. Mm hmm. And that article also pointed out that in 2018, BP invested 2.3% of its budget in renewable energies. So are they really following their own messaging if the idea is to calculate your own carbon footprint and then make changes based on that footprint to reduce it? Another point that is often made is that even if there is no way basically to get your carbon footprint to zero, to get your impact on the world Mm -hmm. to zero. And if you're constantly focused on your individual journey and sending that to absolutely zero, you're playing a losing game and you're focusing essentially on the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Even someone who is unhoused, like living, I don't know, there's an example of someone who eats in soup kitchens and slept in homeless shelters Um, MIT researchers calculated that they would still indirectly emit some 8.5 tons of carbon dioxide each year. So this is where we fall into like the nuances of whether or not carbon footprint is still a valid term to use. Mm -hmm. And like, I think, I don't know, sometimes these conversations kind of make me nervous because it can feel like the environmental movement sort of cannibalizes itself, like fighting over things like this. Mm -hmm. when the focus should be on action, but then at the same time, it's really important to understand what we mean by certain terms and like Mm -hmm. what we mean by certain actions so that we can like channel our focus on something specific. Yeah. So, um, Sammy Grover, who wrote that article, um, an article for mother Jones that I cited, He said, carbon footprints can help us to focus our efforts. Their primary value, however, is not in highlighting where each of us falls short. Instead, they provide a metric for both measuring which individual actions are significant enough to meaningfully reduce emissions and for identifying where policy level interventions might be most needed. We're not on an individual journey to slash our footprint to zero. We're on a collective mission to shift the only true footprint that matters, that of society as a whole. Mm-hmm. There was another great article by Amy Westervelt in The Guardian that explains how big oil has spent most of their odd dollars not really on climate denial, which is a lot like of where the 
focus seems to be. It's like on the climate mm-hmm. denialists, but more on pro-fossil fuel propaganda that delays transformative climate action and kind of reassures consumers. So she cited a paper by the journal Global Sustainability that calls the industry's discourses of delay that fall into four buckets. Mm-hmm. Um, so you tell me which one you think the carbon footprint falls into. The first is redirect responsibility. So consumers are also to blame for fossil fuel emissions. Mm-hmm. The other is push non-transformative actions. So disruptive change is not necessary. Um, emphasize the downside of action, as in change will be disruptive, and surrender. It's not possible to mitigate climate change. Um, Anna Joyner like was commenting on this on Twitter and said that like, you know, the surrender aspect can feel like people are being asked to paint a house that has a wrecking ball outside. Like, you know, what are you supposed to do if you're supposed to repaint the walls? Like that feels so unimportant when it's about to be destroyed. Yeah. And so, I mean, obviously to me, the carbon footprint is under a redirect responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. Trickles into the other ones, but yeah, obviously that one. Yes. And I'll post one of the ads on the blog. It wasn't like honestly particularly interesting and it was sort of bad quality. So I didn't want to focus on it too much. But basically they like went out into the streets and asked people about global warming in like the mid 2000s, maybe like 2005. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of like these I and we statements of these things that we can do as a society, but like very much focusing on the personal consumer within society as opposed to on the fossil fuel companies that are creating these campaigns. Mm -hmm. And I loved Rebecca Solnit's article also in The Guardian about this, and I thought she summarized it quite well. She said, climate chaos demands that we recognize how everything is connected. Seeing yourself as a citizen means seeing yourself as connected to social and political systems. As citizens, we must go after the carbon footprint of the fossil fuel corporations, the beef industry, the power companies, the transportation system, plastics, and so much more. The revolution won't happen by staying home and being good. Mm-hmm. So I, I love that. I think so, some criticism that I saw of her article or maybe or it was an op-ed really like some oversimplifying that that might do is that like there is a value in especially recognizing how countries like the United States, the average person, even someone who's very like disadvantaged or not privileged mm-hmm. in that system. Like we live within a system that is emitting disproportionately large amounts of carbon that are then impacting countries, areas that already do not create very much carbon. So sort of like the, the big message was that like our individual choices make a difference, but they're better when we're given better options to choose from. So mm-hmm it's a lot easier to bike to work when there's a safe bike lane. It's a lot easier to use public transportation when public transportation exists. Um, People like we talked about block power a couple of weeks ago, briefly in the walkable cities um, episode, futures episode. And they were focusing on community centers and churches getting uh, renewable resources so that people in that area, their neighbors, people that come to those places would be more familiar with that technology. And then maybe if they had the opportunity, more likely to advocate for it in their own homes, other areas Mm -hmm. that they live in. So yeah, that's basically everything I have. But I'm glad to have like looked into that term a little bit more. And just like, I don't know, I want to keep repeating that it was created by BP because I think that's like very important to know. But also Mm -hmm. there's like a little bit more nuance to it. Yeah, 100%. And yeah, I feel like it's a good thing to think about to like refocus you I feel like yeah um because I do feel like I mean honestly I feel like so much climate anxiety and like so much like stress around environmental stuff Mm -hmm. like can come out of micromanaging all of your consumption habits whether it's like Mm -hmm. stuff at the grocery store or whatever and I feel like once obviously like I still try to do everything I can like in my power to like have the smallest footprint I guess um Mm -hmm. which I feel like has come from a lot of like larger practices like where do I get clothes like just buying less stuff but like you know if I am at the grocery store and 
want to get strawberries in a plastic container, like, you know, I'm not going to like <laughs> freak out over that. So mm-hmm. yeah, I feel like it's a good one to be like, corporations are tricking me into being stressed. Yes. Um, one more actually quote I wanted to read. Um, I forgot about this, but this is from Sammy Grover. I saw this on Twitter. I believe it's an excerpt from his upcoming book. He said, in much the same way that big employers would rather negotiate with 5,000 workers separately than with the collective power of a union, fossil fuel companies and their allies would rather isolate climate efforts to the smallest possible unit of action, namely the individual consumer, which then yeah. like even to narrow that down more is, yeah, the do I buy the plastic local strawberries at the in-season strawberries at the grocery store or do I buy the like plastic free version from very far away from where I live? Like, Mm -hmm. or is, is it such a bad thing to buy? Like, yeah, the, the lowest cost option at the grocery store because it's what you can afford or what you want Mm -hmm. when like you could be channeling that action into political action. Yeah. Um, when I'd seen some criticism of the carbon footprint, one thing that someone said that I disagreed with, and I want to hear what you have to say. Okay. They were like, they were like, I mean, do you know anyone who I'm paraphrasing? They're like, do you know anyone yeah. who is concerned about their consumption on an individual level and isn't in some way involved politically? And I was like, yeah, I know a lot of people like that. In fact, I feel like that okay. was me for a long time. Maybe not completely like disengaged politically, but not focusing, focusing the vast majority of my efforts personally on individual stuff and not on systems. Yeah. I also feel like there's a way to be involved as a consumer and then actually not be engaging the issue either from a political sense or just like an actual like reality information educational sense like uh there was that new york times article recently that came out about tote bags did you see that Mm -hmm. yeah it was kind of making the rounds but like i feel like there's a lot of like tote bag environmentalists that are like oh like i have a tote bag i'm not taking plastic bags like fixed it Mm -hmm. um and then like in reality the tote bag has a huge carbon footprint mm-hmm. um not to use that term but i i think it's a useful term i don't think we yeah. should get rid of it like i think there's a time and a place to like talk about carbon footprints of certain things but yeah basically the new york times article was like talking about how you know one tote bag you need to use it like sixty thousand times mm-hmm. for it to offset like using plastic bags instead so essentially like is it really that good of a solution if you have like 50 tote bags which I feel like tote bags are very easy to acquire like I have way too many of them so like Mm -hmm. yeah I think there's a lot of people and I think we all do it sometimes when there's a solution that seems good that you can be doing something but not actually like examine it and then also it's not like leading you to you know engage politically or whatever yeah or it's that whole thing of like change will be disruptive and Mm -hmm. so sometimes yeah if if something is disruptive in a way that's uncomfortable to you then sometimes it's like easy to just want to ignore that Mm -hmm. like if basically if you want to consume tote bags at the same level that you're consuming plastic bags like that's never going to work as a one-to-one solution Um, yeah yeah I don't know like it's it's interesting and yeah I don't want to get rid of this term either but and I don't, I also don't necessarily think that ecological footprint is better because I actually like that carbon footprint puts more of a the onus on greenhouse gas emissions fossil fuels yeah but at the same time like it, it's one of those terms that's been it was like popularized by the industry itself and then went into like more corporate Amer- or corporate production, the everyday lexicon, all of that. Whereas a lot mm-hmm. of the time it'll be the opposite. It's like, oh, people are, you know, talking a lot about sustainability in academic journal. Let's take that term and like use it to seem woke. Yeah. I also feel like like part of the reason why I'm not like <laughs> like carbon footprint is canceled uh Mm -hmm. is because like it doesn't only apply to individuals like yeah it can apply to yeah the big corporations like it just needs to be turned back 
on them because like they have the biggest footprints mm-hmm. yeah so like it's uh, yeah I think that's where the focus needs to stay right yeah it's like, it's like all right all we're things. all standing we're all in this giant footprint of this company mm-hmm. I wonder whose fault it is like we all have our own little tracks but like I don't know I feel like it's like a dinosaur movie or something where like I don't know people are like going through the brush and then they're like hmm what is this and then like they zoom out and it's like this big thing and yes. yeah yeah, there was like that's that, how it feels. <laughs> I forget where I saw it, but there was somewhere that was like, if you're focusing on the big toe of the footprint or like the footprint of the, you know, larger ground, like you're mm-hmm. missing the point. And that's yeah, that's exactly that. Yeah. So tree huggers, <laughs> tree huggers. So, yeah, I'm going to talk about the word tree hugger today. Uh, and my sources are Earth Island, the Swarthmore Global Nonviolent Action Database, Grist, Patagonia, Women's Earth Alliance, JSTOR Daily, and a little bit of Wikipedia to stick everything together. Just a dash. As, <laughs> you know, always. So basically, with the term tree hugger, what comes to your mind when I say that word? Like, stereotypically. I guess. Um, like 1960s hippie environmentalists or okay. literal tree hugging. Okay. So, yeah. So I feel like when you say the word, generally, you kind of picture a white American environmentalist, mm-hmm. I feel like is the thing or like hippie. And one article I read, which I thought kind of latched onto an important point, is that tree huggers are often seen as caring more about animal and plant life than human thriving, Mm -hmm. which like, I feel like we've talked about this a million times, but like that is obviously not a good way to look at things because like humans are nature and if we're not all thriving together, like we're not really thriving. Mm -hmm. Um, But that idea, I think of like, you know, preserving nature for nature's sake and like nature is its own separate thing that needs protecting is like a very prominent idea in a lot of conservation movements led by white people mm-hmm. in the United States. So like that kind of checks out to me. But um, in addition to having a negative connotation, the term tree hugger is often used super dismissively as well, um, which I think is important to note. But using the word tree hugger in this way does not honor its badass history and the heroism of the people who inspired it. So about 300 years ago in the Thar Desert in the northwestern Indian state of Rajasthan, there lived a group of people called the Bishnoi. Now, Bishnoi is a branch of Hinduism founded in 1485 by Guru Jambeshwar who is also sometimes referred to as Guru Jamhaji. But Guru Jambeshwar set out 29 principles that people should follow, which is where the branch gets its name. So I figure since we're talking about words and language a little bit, bis means 20 in the local dialect and noi means nine. So bishnoi basically means 29 after the 29 principles. Mm. But many of the 29 principles of this branch are about hygiene and social practices, but a good handful of them are about being environmentally conscious and coexisting with nature. So those particular principles include never felling green trees, making sure bugs are out of firewood before you burn it, being merciful to all living beings and loving them, providing shelter for abandoned animals, adhering to a strict vegetarian diet, and not wearing indigo blue clothes because the dyeing process kills a lot of the plant. So after 300 years of practicing those beliefs, the Bishnoi lived in a thriving ecosystem filled with lush vegetation, trees, animals, and drinkable water in an otherwise desertous area. But in September of 1730, Um, And in one place, I saw that it was September 11th, which is just kind of like a weird synchronicity. Hmm. Um, But in September of 1730, so basically we're coming up on the 291st anniversary of this story. The Maharaja Abhai Singh needed materials to build a new palace in the city of Jodhpur. 
And when thinking of a good place to get lumber, the area around the Bishnoi village came to mind. So he sent his soldiers southeast to go cut down trees around the village of Janad. And when the villagers saw that the soldiers were there to cut down their sacred Kedri trees, they were absolutely horrified. To stop them, one woman named Amrita Devi threw herself around one of the Kedri trees and encouraged other villagers to do the same. The soldiers saw all this fuss that they were causing and were like, okay, so we have this royal order and we can, you know, stop cutting down your trees, but you're going to have to sweeten the deal for us. And they asked for, you know, some sort of bribe. But bribes were a huge insult to her faith. So Amrita said she'd rather die than see her sacred forest cut down. The soldiers were angered by her defiance, but Amrita stood her ground and with her arms wrapped around the tree, she looked at them and said, a chopped head is cheaper than a chopped tree. And then they beheaded her. Her daughters stepped in to fill in for her, protecting the trees and the soldiers beheaded them one after the other. The, Holy crap. Yeah. This is insane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the villagers just like followed their lead and basically just kept filling in for each other one after the other, hugging the trees so that the soldiers would have to chop through them before they could chop the trees down. Word spread in Bishnoi from over 80 villages gathered in Janad. And in a meeting, they decided that they had to stay their course and continue to send people out to shield the trees. The soldiers basically accused them of only sending people that they didn't care about or need, which like, (laughs) what does that even mean? Um, But like, I guess like kind of like maybe sending people only the people that were like old and sick or something. So in response, younger Bishnoi and even children went out and threw themselves around the trees. And the soldiers continued to kill them all the same until 363 villagers lay dead on the forest floor. Finally, the Maharaja heard what was going on and was like, uh, oh my God, not what I asked you guys to do. Stop. Um, and he personally rushed out to the village to stop the soldiers and to apologize for what had happened. Moved a little too late. Yeah. 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 A little, little too late. Maybe you should like, you know, specified, but like, I don't think anyone was expecting them to do that or like to be so willing to lay down their lives for Mm -hmm. these trees. So the Maharaja was super moved by this and by their, you know, passive resistance. And he decreed that they would never have to provide wood for the kingdom again. And those protections are still in place and still honored. The village was renamed Kijarli after the Kedri trees and all of the Bishnoi who died to protect them. They also built a temple to honor all of the martyrs uh, of the Kajarli massacre, as it's known today. And many Bishnoi people pilgrimage the temple each September in remembrance. So <laughs> that is the really fucking intense, hardcore origin story of where the term tree hugger comes from. But yeah, wow. Yeah, like, oh, oh my God, totally different from any previous connotation that I had with the word tree hugger seems nice and peaceful and like, yeah, like, let's just protect the trees. No, <laughs> it's really intense. Like, oof. but the story kind of continues on a little bit. And I feel like it would be a bit of a disservice to the Bishnoi's legacy to leave out that that movement in the 1700s inspired the 1970s Chipko movement in India. Basically a very (laughs) condensed version of the story because there's lots of moving pieces here, but because the state of Uttar Pradesh in the Himalayas needed money for development, such as building highways and stuff in the 1960s, they increased their logging industry to devastating effect. In 1970, heavy monsoons led to the flooding of three major rivers and over 200 people lost their lives. 
So links were made between monoculture logging and the severity of this event. So not only, and then like, not only was flooding a huge issue being caused by this, but logging was also hurting local economies since permits for logging were really only given to big companies that sold their products hundreds of miles away. So local people weren't able to, you know, manage their own resources and the ways Mm -hmm. they'd been doing for centuries. And they weren't able to really benefit from any of the logging activities that were happening. So those issues combined led to groups popping up all over the region with people taking inspiration from Amrita Devi and throwing themselves around trees, which is where the Chipko movement gets its name, since Chipko means to cling in Hindi. Hmm. So women organized vigils day and night, and they were successfully able to thwart logging efforts. And this happened um, on a super like wide scale, like lots of people got involved in this. And there was a lot of coordination between many different villages and groups. And because of that, a 15-year-long ban on all logging in Uttar Pradesh went into effect in 1980. And while luckily significantly less head chopping was involved in this movement uh, in the 70s, it was still, yeah, like, like I said, all hands on deck, lots of different groups, villages, all working together to be recognized by the larger government to really significantly, you know, save trees and to get laws that save trees to go into effect. So basically, long story short, while tree hugger is a word often used by capitalists to write off white environmentalists, its roots lie in really intense and incredibly successful activism by people of color. And Mm -hmm. that shouldn't be forgotten. Also, so this like basically complete warping of the word tree hugger, which I will say, I guess there are records of this, of the word tree hugger starting to be used in the 60s. So like people often say that like the word was inspired by the Chipka movement, but like obviously it was from the much earlier thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And then some other things say that it really became more popular in the 80s. But either way, basically like how that word was completely like changed from this like really intense, like really selfless activity, I guess, mm-hmm. um, changed to something that, yeah, is meant to like just write people off. It kind of connected with a sweatpants podcast episode I was listening to recently. And the podcast, if you have not listened to it, is hosted by Raleigh Williams of Climate Town. So it's it's great. It's very funny and light. Uh, I, I mean, as light as a climate podcast can be, I guess. I think it isn't um, it like the low key climate podcast <laughs> yes. or something. Yeah. So it's like low key. Yeah. For like a high key issue. So it's really fun to listen to if anybody's looking for another climate podcast. But on the particular episode that I was listening to, climate comedian Chuck Nice brought up the idea that our language is associative. And so that words don't necessarily mean their definitions, but kind of like mm-hmm. all the other things that people tack onto them. So like one word that has a specific definition could end up meaning a very different thing, you know, over time. And I, I mean, I, I feel like I think of it like, like if you know a guy named Jeremy, Jeremy, who is just like the absolute worst, every time you hear like the name Jeremy, you're just going to be like, your first reaction could be like, fuck that guy. Mm-hmm. But like, it has nothing to do with the name Jeremy. It just like all the associations with it. And every time you've been frustrated with the asshole Jeremy, Jeremy mm-hmm. that you know. What Jeremy represents. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It becomes a symbol, something other than the word. But anyway, for some reason, Republicans and big corporations, kind of like we saw in your story, are just, you know, really good at PR probably because they have a lot of money to be good at PR, but they're just really successful at taking words and completely changing what they mean or changing our associations with them. So essentially, like, I mean, obviously we saw carbon footprint and how that was applied to individuals and like small actions and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But I feel like you also see it with words like tree hugger, 
that even if I am like tree huggers are great, like everybody should be a tree hugger. Like I know that that word, it's kind of a lot of times meant to be an insult. Um, yeah. It's also, <laughs> it's crazy because I feel like, I don't know, I was seeing on Greta Thunberg's Twitter actually recently that like something around four climate activists are killed every week, like in the Mm. hundreds every year, even today. I mean, that's happening all the time. And it's not something that we hear a whole lot about. Whereas then the tote bag environmentalists or Mm -hmm. like the tree hugger of the like version, the very whitewashed capitalist version of it that we know is talked about all the time. And like, it's so easy to get press, major press for like that idea when, Mm -hmm. and then like, then on the other hand of that, there's still literal tree huggers of like the yeah. ancient forest of Fairy Creek. I don't know if you like have heard about that, but there's like the Fairy Creek blockade okay. that have been, you know, staying in trees in order to protest this ancient forest being cut down for, I think it's natural gas exploration. I don't know, like mm-hmm. fossil fuel exploration and like how little coverage that gets in non-environmental circles versus like the the tree hugger that we can make fun of I guess yeah and I mean it's a lot more nice to think of like the Mm -hmm. like oh like someone is like having us like really cute life with all their cute little environmentally friendly things like that's nice and easily easy to consume and like oh I get that like maybe I could do that but yeah it's a lot harder to digest people who are like actually risking their lives actually dying actually like that's hard to swallow. Like that's a hard pill to swallow, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, should get more coverage because yeah, that's a big, big bummer. But (laughs) anyway, all that to say is I feel like whatever that skill is, whatever that like flipping words association thing that I feel like happens a lot, we should we should like as the environmental movement do more. So I I sent you a really, really silly insult chart from mm-hmm. a grist article from 2006. And I feel like I feel like there was like I feel like people tried this like let's flip words. Let's like either stop people from using insults or try to insult people that just like really didn't work. Mm-hmm. And it was like really cheesy and really bad, but I feel like we could do it better now. But like this chart, which I, I'll put, <laughs> I'm gonna put on our website because it's just very silly. But there's like an A, B, and C column, and there's all sorts of like little insults. So like you could say like from the first column, there's like two faced. You pick the next one, like SUV. And they're all like kind of like weirdly sexual too. So it's like a really, really <laughs> bad, but like a crafty carbon dioxide canoodler, uh, like a uh, Machiavellian Cheney Frencher, all, all sorts of like really silly things. But like, yeah, I don't know. I just feel like there needs to be some sort of campaign whether it's, you know, people who know what they're doing or just like some some like a company like Tesla or something that like has a lot of money is kind of glamorous and has like a kind of like at least in, you know, front facing earth friendly thing going on mm-hmm. or just like K-pop stands or something like really bullying, you know. I mean, it goes like right in with green trolling, doesn't it? Exactly. It's like, that, yeah, that was my next thing. Like, it was kind of going into like green trolling and basically like taking away that social license to exist for entities mm-hmm. that are killing the planet. So, like, how can we change? Like, every time you hear like fossil fuels, that like everyone is like gross, like ew, or like I feel like another word that people use or like like right wing not you don't even have to be that right wing in in the states I feel like but like how people use the word commie to Mm. like describe anyone who like starts talking with any ounce of compassion for other people like even if they're not talking about like anything near communism there's like uh shit your commie mouth Mm -hmm. um like could that happen to the word capitalist I don't know but 
I don't know. I just think that's something to think about, like associations, associations with words. How can we change the associations we have with commonplace words and ideas right now Mm -hmm. moving forward to make it clear, like, you know, the entities that are causing harm and like have everyone react to that in an appropriate way. Cause I feel yeah. like that's not happening. There's not a lot of like widespread appropriate responses to the level of destruction that's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot can happen within language to make that happen. But yeah. obviously that takes a lot. <laughs> Yeah, um, all of these, it's like, it's like villainizing fossil fuel, com- fossil fuel companies, which usually that term is used in a negative context, but like, yeah, this is what we exactly what we should be doing. Cause like, that's yeah. where we need to band against yeah. be like, no, you, you know, you're talking about going net zero, but you're still buying new oil fields. Yeah, like you're still, you like- are a despicable, <laughs> let's see, carbon still- dioxide spooner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a really, really bad chart. Uh, but it's maybe a starting place, you know? Because- Get your, yeah, adjective vocabulary <laughs> a little beefier. <laughs> yeah. So like, and like, I don't, I don't think like we should have a chart like that because I don't think that works. But like, I think take any of those words and, you know, give them the negative context that they definitely are earning. I think that that is a good thing to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, or even just like, and, and obviously this could come from someone with a lot of money running a PR campaign, but also like, you know, if you're talking with friends and like you're saying certain words with a certain tone or like giving them a certain negative connotation, then I think that's also a good place to start. Yeah. That's about, that's about all I have, but yeah, man, tree huggers really mm-hmm. intense. That's so interesting. Yeah. I'm glad to know. I'm glad to know both of those stories. And like, yeah, I love I love language in general. And it's so interesting to watch the way that language evolves. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's yeah, it's cool to to think about that. If there are any other words, if you're listening and there's another word that you want us to do, like or or term like net zero. I think there are so many that we could potentially do. Global warming mm-hmm. is another one, you know, the the change from global warming to climate crisis. Yeah. All of that. Um let us know. We mm-hmm. have all our socials and stuff are all linked below. Yeah. So you can reach out to us. I would love to hear mm-hmm. any suggestions that people have. Yeah. Um, I, I also, I forget what I was listening to, but like also the idea of how like in the environmental space, we spend a lot of time thinking about language and like, what's the mm-hmm. right term? Like, what's the best way to communicate this? Like, which words should we be using? And a lot of times it feels like, um, people who are in that space are throwing words around like whatever Mm -hmm. yeah I think that's also like an interesting concept of like how careful we are with language yeah uh, versus not especially yeah when thinking about like climate justice and inclusive language too like sometimes you can be like oh it doesn't really matter what I say in this very small conversation or like you know this one organizing message or something like that but like in fact it can be really important to like yeah purposely use inclusive language and um language that like pushes us forward rather than like going back into kind of what we're comfortable with Mm -hmm. um yeah I this is sort of woo-woo but I (laughs) is that is that that an appropriate term I don't know um but I wanted to read it because I I don't know it has more to do with like climate emotions or climate language for climate emotions but someone posted it yesterday and I liked it it was from um, Morgan Harper Nichols who is a a fantastic writer she said that this is the quote consider that collectively we are in a place where many of us are feeling nameless feelings right now it is possible that years down the line we may have to create new words to describe what we're feeling in this space some of the words we use to describe what we're experiencing right now just might not feel like enough And maybe that's okay because we've never been here before. This is all brand new. And maybe in time, the words will need to be new too. Perhaps feeling what you need to feel is a process and finding the language for those feelings is a process too. Mm -hmm. I like that because I think it makes, it makes a point that like, 
our language is constantly developing and like we're going to find new mm-hmm. words that will describe the feelings that we have right now or the like phenomena that we're experiencing right now Mm -hmm. and also the words that we use right now might not seem like enough 10 years from now like I worry sometimes that you know I haven't listened back to our first episode but in theory that if I did like I would hear myself saying words that I don't necessarily align with right now and I'm sure eventually that's going to happen but like that can be kind of a cool process too of like seeing how these words develop over time and are used yeah. And um, I'm still not finished with this book because it's just taking me forever. But All We Can Save has some essays in it talking about like creating language and like the idea of like thinking like I feel really upset and I feel bad and like all this stuff and people coming up with the idea of like I'm experiencing like pre-TSD from like mm-hmm. everything we're expecting and like how that can go into like climate anxiety and solastalgia and like all those words like it's cool to see it kind of happening in real time. And Mm -hmm. also I feel like there is like everything is so overwhelming that like it, even though we don't have the language to describe things, I feel like there is a little bit of interesting perspective. Like, like (laughs) there will be language to describe what we're going through right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And none of us are alone in it. Yeah. Yeah it's just hard to rec like it's hard for everyone to be on the same page about what we're all feeling because there aren't necessarily words to describe it Mm -hmm. um so good news and bad news there i guess yeah should we go to the dump let's do it i have a recipe that's not it's for you but like since your husband is a professional bartender okay you know it's probably not new to you but it's new to me as someone who like lives with some former bartenders I always feel like I am bad at making fancy drinks for people or if I make them be they're either way too strong way too floral because I really like floral drinks or Mm -hmm. just like whatever yeah so I found a recipe for a gin fizz that I really dig okay um I've also had some trials and errors of trying to make um like meringues and stuff from aquafaba Uh which is chickpea water yeah for those that don't know, actually, it doesn't have to be chickpeas. You can use like cannellini bean water and all huh. these different kinds I of things. Yeah, you can. I, I think it depends a little bit maybe on like the certain beans, but the aquafaba comes from multiple beans. Hmm. But I made like this chickpea curry salad that I make pretty often for like sandwiches throughout the week. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I really want to save the aquafaba this time and see what I can do. Yeah. So a couple of days ago, my roommate and I made gin well I made them gin fizzes which is super simple it's just I'll put the recipe on our website um it's just aquafaba simple syrup which we made literally just from sugar Mm -hmm. um gin lemon juice and or lime juice and then you shake it for one minute in a shaker and it comes out just like an egg cream like super super creamy and put that over club soda or a fizzy drink I use the lemon elderflower soda from Trader Joe's which like one little can made I think four drinks. Okay. And I was very happy. I didn't get a good picture of it, but I'll try to make it again. Um, okay. Cause yeah, it was just like very simple. The aquafaba actually like turned into the cream that it was supposed to. And like with a minute of shaking, as opposed to, to make the meringues, you have to like be constantly whipping it for 10 minutes, which is incredibly yeah. difficult if you're doing it by hand. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, I know uh, Lan has made like uh, like Ramos gin fizzes mm. before. Um, not, I don't think he's made them with aquafaba. I think he's made them with egg white. But um, yeah, it's like, I don't know how yours went, but like he'll pour it into a cup and then pour, I think, seltzer over it. And then it kind of like the the foamy part like sticks out of the glass. Mm. Um. But I know, like, you have to shake them for a really long time. So I know that's always, like, a really intense thing to order at a bar. Like, you don't want to, you don't necessarily want to order that on a busy night if you're yeah. being kind well, to your 
bartenders. True. Yeah. I mean, you, this one, you just have to shake it for one minute. Like we have a shaker and like with that, with the, some ice in it obviously gets really cold. And yeah. the first time I made it, the top like exploded. Oh, <laughs> the no. little the little top <laughs> exploded off just at the very end because I was like, yeah, I don't believe that this is going to work in a minute. So I shook it for like a minute and a half. And at the end, it was like, please stop and exploded mm-hmm. a little bit. But the second time I just put, kept my finger over that, it was fine. So not nearly as bad and like not as didn't make my arm hurt or anything like that okay. um, with the aquafaba. So, that's awesome. you know, try it okay. out. Yeah, I'll have to try it with the aquafaba. Um, but we didn't like I didn't use a ton of the like fizzy soda. We just put mm-hmm. that we used like martini glasses and had that in, gotcha. in the glass already and then put mm-hmm. the like mixture on top. Nice. Yeah, I basically have just been living in puppy worlds. Yes. Um. Because I feel like the first like two weeks of having Poe, he was kind of just like getting used to the space and was sleeping a lot. But like he is like full curious puppy, ready to go, um, but also like does not want to go on walks. So I've been trying mm-hmm. to get him to go on as many walks. But I'm like, you need to walk. You need to get your energy out or I'm going to lose my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's been really crazy. Uh, he's. I'm like an Australian cattle dog mix. So like he has the instinct to like nip and like nip at your heels and like nip your legs Mm -hmm. as just like essentially like that's his job, but it's very annoying. And also like he'll jump and bite. So it like it'll get you if he hits you right. So I've taken to like carrying around a fanny pack of treats to like keep him focused on something because like they also just like need jobs they need like tasks so I've been like it's been a whole thing but yeah I've Mm. I've been like going around my house with a little treat fanny pack to keep him on his best behavior so and also he like he's taken it upon himself to like herd the cats so he's always trying to bark, bark at them and obviously he's on the job so like distracting him with toys and stuff is very difficult so I'm just like okay maybe treats how are the cats getting on with him they they are fine with him like he'll kind of like jump on them Shelly is is better at fending for herself she she'll just be like laying on her back and like swatting at him just like leave Hmm. me alone but Agatha kind of hunkers down and like will freeze so he kind of like will get on top of her and like <laughs> pin her down which isn't great um, oh my gosh but but like they're they're fine like if they need to get away like they'll I have full faith that they will show him who's boss um but yeah that's been a whole thing um yeah my roommate was dog sitting this weekend so it wasn't even my responsibility and even they're like trying not to get the dog to not be peeing on the carpet like especially out of excitement um mm-hmm. he threw up in the back seat of her car and like oh no what well, yeah was like very aggressive not aggressive but like um was was walking me more than I was walking her basically mm-hmm. <laughs> especially if we saw a squirrel and I was yeah. like I have a lot of respect to like dog trainers and dog owners yeah. because I I love dogs in theory but like after that weekend I was like I wasn't even the one taking care yeah. of and I was like I'm I'm over it for right now yeah. and like honestly for the most part like I think in like a year he's gonna be a really good dog yeah like other than like the first few days that we had him when he didn't really know the house didn't really like know anything like other than those first couple of days like he hasn't had any accidents in the house for the most part he listens and has mm-hmm. learned like sit stay really well and really quickly so like he's been really good for the most part but like a couple hours a day he just like gives us hell and like absolutely will not want to do anything except for bark at the cats and uh, yeah and not go for a walk yeah um, but then you get to the evening and they're cuddling and with you and it's really all cute. yeah worth yeah. it so that's just been my life me running around with my little bag of treats being like yeah. please, <laughs> please. <laughs> I'm just imagining you on like a work call or something. And you're just like, like bending stop. off the dog. Yeah. yeah. So it's been wild. Yeah. yeah. That's that's basically my entire life. 
trying to get things done in between getting him to behave and be a good puppy. Yeah, I is. Um, should I do our socials? Yeah, do it. Okay, so you can find all of our show notes and sources, everything on our website, worldsburning.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram at worldsburning with no G and on TikTok at worldsburning with a G. You can find our email on our website, worldsburningpod at gmail.com. If you have any word ideas, contact us on social media or email or any story ideas in general. We love to hear from people and take those suggestions. Um, And yeah, we'll see you next Wednesday. See you next Wednesday.